Chapter 16 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Lennon. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. Edited by Walter Wood. Chapter 16. Seddon's Greed of Gold. Chapter 16. Seddon's Greed of Gold. The most sinister, deliberate, and cruel of all murders are those which are due to the administration of poison. In many cases the motive for such crimes is avarice, and what the judge called greed of gold sent Frederick Henry Seddon to the scaffold for the murder of Miss Eliza M. Barrow. Seddon's wife was tried with him, but she was found not guilty and was acquitted. Miss Barrow, with a comfortable and assured private income, went to lodge with the Seddons. Seddon, an insurance superintendent of a grasping and bombastic nature, did not rest until he had the whole of Miss Barrow's fortune made over to him, by his own craft and cunning, in return for an annuity. Then, having secured her money, he took prompt and successful steps to poison her. The trial, which took place before Mr. Justice Bucknell, lasted ten days and aroused deep and widespread interest. One of the most important witnesses was Mr. Frank Ernest Vanderhey, Miss Barrow's cousin, who was largely responsible in bringing the murderer to justice, and whose story is here retold. Miss E.M. Barrow, who was murdered by Frederick Henry Seddon, was my cousin, and was nearly fifty years old at the time of her death. She was very comfortably circumstanced, as she had always been, for she had never in her life found it necessary to work. She had a great regard for money, and in the ordinary course of things would not give four farthings for a penny. She lived with us at one period, but left us to take up her residence with Seddon and his wife, who had a large house at 63 Tollington Park, and had advertised the upper part to let. There was a little boy named Ernie Grant who lived with Miss Barrow when she was with us, and he went and lived with her at the Seddons. My cousin was very much attached to the little fellow, and his association with the case became of much importance when it was a matter of finding a motive for what had been done. Miss Barrow had a public house called the Buck's Head, which brought her in 105 pounds a year. She had a barber shop adjoining the Buck's Head, which gave her another 50 pounds yearly and she always had plenty of ready cash and money in the bank. It is perhaps a singular coincidence that both my cousin and Seddon had a very great regard for money, and I have no doubt that she was impressed by seeing him handle considerable sums of gold in the ordinary way of his business as an insurance superintendent. I never knew a meaner or more avaricious man than Seddon. Money was his god, and it was his greed of gold which sent him to the gallows. 
If he had not been so hungry for money, if he had not been determined at all costs to get every penny that Miss Barrow had, it is possible, in fact probable, that his crime never would have been found out. If he had had the worldly wisdom to remember the poor little lad and put aside for him even two or three hundred pounds out of the money that he got from the murdered woman, I think it is likely that no suspicion of foul play would have been aroused, and that Miss Barrow's relatives would have been content to assume that, for reasons of her own, she had parted with everything she possessed to Seddon. As it was, the case from the outset was one of the gravest possible suspicion, and once we had begun to move in the matter it was obvious that we could not rest until the very strictest inquiry had been made. We had been in the habit of seeing my cousin about three times a week, but for some days we had not seen either her or Ernie Grant, and my wife said, Why don't you go round and find out how they're getting on? So I went down to 63 Tollington Park, which was only a few minutes' walk from where I lived. I knocked at the door, and it was opened by a young woman named Mary Chatter, who was general servant at the house. I asked if Miss Barrow was in, and to my amazement the girl replied, Miss Barrow is dead and buried, didn't you know? No, I told her. When was she buried? Last Saturday, Mary Chatter answered, and it was now Wednesday. I asked her, when did she die? And she said, last Thursday. I was, of course, completely taken aback, and I asked to see Seddon. But the girl said he was out and would not be back for about an hour. I came home and saw my wife and told her what I had heard. And an hour later, we both went on to number 63, arriving there about nine o'clock. This time we saw Maggie Seddon, the daughter, who told us that her father had not returned and that he had gone to the Finsbury Park Empire and would not be back till late. We came away, and I went and communicated with my brother, who is now here with us as we talk, and we discussed the matter and decided that our wives should go to Tollington Park and see Seddon and try to learn something from him. Next morning they went, and Maggie Seddon opened the door to them, and they were shown into a sitting room, where they were kept waiting for some time. Then Seddon and his wife entered the room, and Seddon at once announced that he had not much time to spare. He took out a watch and looked at it, a watch which subsequently proved to have belonged to Miss Barrow. At that interview, Seddon was cool and calculating, but his wife was on the point of breaking down. He took care to do all the talking and said to her, Sit still, my dear, don't upset yourself. I can say all there is to say. She would have given everything away. After demanding to know who the visitors were and being told, he handed them a copy of a letter addressed to me, but which I had never received. This letter to the effect that Miss Barrow had died and that the funeral would take place on the following Saturday. It gave invitations to the funeral and added that Miss Barrow had made a will three days before her death 
leaving what she died possessed of to Hilda and Ernest Grant and appointing Seddon sole executor. That letter, I may say now, was never really sent to me, but was written by Seddon with the object of helping to conceal his crime and make everything appear to be in order. It was a black-edged letter, and in addition to it, Seddon gave to the wives a letter addressed to the relatives, a copy of the will, and a memorial card. In quite a business-like way, he put these letters into a large envelope and handed them to my sister-in-law. At the end of the interview, they asked him if he would see me, but he answered, Oh, I've wasted enough time on you. I'm a businessman and can't be troubled by people asking questions. My wife and sister-in-law had expected to take possession of Miss Barrow's effects, but nothing of this kind happened, and when they came away from Tollington Park, they were so satisfied that Seddon's manner was suspicious that, after carefully considering the matter together, we decided that it was necessary to go farther with it. Very grave doubts had entered our minds. It was not until October 9th that I saw Seddon for the first time. He had gone to South End for a holiday, as he said he felt run down. Before calling again at his house, I had various inquiries to make concerning the property and investments which Miss Barrow had possessed. While these were being made, Ernie Grant called round to see us, about a week after the visit by my wife and sister-in-law at Tollington Park. But I saw at once that precautions had been taken to prevent the boy from being questioned because he was accompanied by one of Seddon's sons. I did not ask any questions, but said to the boy Seddon, Tell your father that I will call and see him in about a week's time. When, on October 9th, I went round to 63, I was accompanied by a friend of mine named Mr. Thomas Walker. We were admitted to the house and kept waiting for about 20 minutes. At the end of that time, Seddon and his wife came into the room, and with all the assurance in the world, Seddon came up to me and said questioningly, Mr. Frank Ernest Vonderhey? I answered yes, and he turned to my friend and said, Mr. Albert Edward Vonderhey? But I explained that it was not my brother, who was not well enough to accompany me, but a friend. Seddon was in what I might call fine fighting form. He was smoking a cigar, and I am sure that while we were kept waiting, he was taking a drink or two to get himself up to the mark. At any rate, he at once asked, What do you want? and began to ride the high horse. I let him run on a bit. Then he said, I see that you've been making inquiries. And of course, I had. I told him that I wished to see my cousin's will, and he replied that he did not see why he should give me any information. He began to talk glibly about my going to see a solicitor and swearing an affidavit, and when I asked who was the owner of the buck's head now, he promptly said, I am, and I own the shop next door. I'm always open to buy property. This house I live in, it has 14 rooms, is my own, and I have 17 other properties. I'm always open to buy property at a price. As he stood there smoking his cigar, he looked thoroughly prosperous and well-pleased with himself, and did not show a sign of suspecting 
what a hideous fate was soon to overtake him. His manner and speech indicated perfect self-confidence and assurance, and I could quite well believe the stories I had heard of him, which showed him to be a man of great resource, very ready in speech, and plausible to a degree. His business as an insurance superintendent gave him that confidence to a large extent. I understood he was excellent company, and amongst other things he was, or had been, a local preacher. This fluency of speech and readiness to explain things away might easily have put one off the track, but I had learned too much from my inquiries to be readily disposed of, and I persisted in my questions. I felt very much concerned that my cousin should have been buried in a common grave at Finchley, as she had been when there was a family vault available at Highgate, and I asked for enlightenment on this point. Seddon was ready with his answer, which was, I thought the vault was full up. As for the property, he declared that he had bought it in the open market, and when I got to the matter of the annuity and asked what Miss Barrow paid for it, Seddon at once replied, That is for the proper authorities to find out, and I am perfectly willing to meet any solicitor. I am prepared to spend a thousand pounds to prove that all I have done in regard to Miss Barrow is perfectly in order. That was about as far as I could get with Seddon at that time. But matters were advancing, for, amongst other things, I knew quite well that the buck's head had not been bought in the open market and that my cousin would never have parted with the property in that way. Again, we talked the matter over amongst ourselves, and decided that it was best to communicate with the police. Accordingly, we wrote to the public prosecutor, Sir Charles Matthews, and the next development in the case was the exhumation of my cousin's body. This took place in the middle of November and I and my brother had the very unwelcome and painful task of attending the mortuary at the cemetery for the purpose of identifying the remains. I will not dwell on that dreadful experience beyond saying that we identified the body, which had been taken out of the coffin and placed on a slab, and we had an opportunity of seeing how shamefully the burial had been carried out, owing to Seddon's greed, for he had provided only the cheapest possible funeral, and had actually got a commission from the undertaker on even this mean expenditure. The post-mortem examination, which was carried out by Drs. Spilberry and Wilcox, showed that death was due to acute arsenical poisoning, and was not caused, as the certificate stated and said and declared, by epidemic diarrhea. Of this grim and terrible examination and discovery, Seddon knew nothing, and no doubt he thought he was perfectly safe. After Miss Barrow's death, he seemed to enter upon a period of fresh prosperity, and was constantly seen in the neighborhood tearing about in a yellow motor car. He must have thoroughly enjoyed this experience, for he loved display, but it was not to last long. One night, pretty late, the coroner's officer appeared at the door of the house in Tollington Park and served upon Seddon a summons to attend an inquest on the body of Miss Barrow. That was the first intimation he had received of the exhumation, and the document must have been taken by him in the light of a death warrant. Next morning, 
it was noticed that he seemed to be twenty years older. He had been sitting up all night making notes and getting ready for replies to any questions that might be put. It is singular that the inquest opened on Miss Barrow's birthday, which was November 23rd. The inquest itself was likely to prove deadly enough, but even before it was concluded, after being adjourned, Seddon was arrested on a charge of willfully murdering Miss Barrow. That was on December 4, 1911. Ten days later, the adjourned inquest was held and a verdict of murder by some person or persons unknown given by the coroner's jury. On January 15, 1912, Mrs. Seddon was arrested on a charge of being concerned with Seddon in the murder, and on February 12th, both the prisoners were committed for trial. The extraordinary confidence which I had noticed in Seddon was maintained, and outwardly he gave the impression of feeling certain that in the end he would regain his freedom. Even when in custody, he willingly posed for the newspaper photographers and carefully arranged himself at a window for their convenience. I saw him doing this and noticed his appearance. He looked smiling and full of health and spirits, a contrast indeed with the picture he presented at the trial, where he seemed literally to have shrunk and suddenly grown years older. It was almost impossible to recognize him as the bombastic person who had been so ready with his answers to my questions about the death of Miss Barrow and the disposal of her property. During the preliminary hearing, he was continually taking notes and leaning over to consult his solicitor. He laughed and smiled a good deal, but there was no heartiness in his laughter, and I feel sure that all this cheerfulness was put on. It was not until Monday, March 4th, that the trial began at the Central Criminal Court and that a wonderfully detailed and constructed story of the crime was told by the Attorney General, Sir Rufus Isaacs, who is now Lord Chief Justice. By this time I knew almost every circumstance of the case, and I was particularly struck by the astonishing fairness of the prosecution. The prisoners had every human chance of being acquitted, because of this fairness and the care and skill of Mr. Marshall Hall, who defended Seddon, Mrs. Seddon being defended by Mr. Rental. For ten days that calm and patient trial went on, for a great number of witnesses were called. There were some very long and exhaustive speeches, and Seddon himself was in the witness box a whole day and part of two days. Of course, the chief interest of the trial centered in the efforts to prove the poisoning of Miss Barrow, though there was a good deal of time spent in showing that Seddon had a powerful motive in getting rid of her, so that he could fully enjoy the benefit of the money which he had secured. It was shown that Miss Barrow lived with the Seddons for fourteen months, and in that period she made over to Seddon 1,600 pounds of India stock, for which he arranged to give her an annuity of 103 pounds, 4 shillings, 9 pence, just under two a week. And she also made over the buck's head and the barber's shop for a further annuity of 52 pounds, so that for what he had got out of Miss Barrow, Seddon was paying three pounds weekly. This, in any case, represented a first-rate investment for him, whereas 
If anything went wrong with him, Miss Barrow was utterly ruined. She had given up government stock and sound leasehold property, and put her trust in a man of no great standing. For Seddon had a wife and five children dependent on him, and supported an old father. An important feature of the case was that no fewer than thirty-three five-pound notes, which Miss Barrow had had, were proved to have been in the possession of the Seddons. The theory of the prosecution was that Miss Barrow had been poisoned by arsenic, which had been extracted from fly-papers, and Mrs. Seddon had admitted that she bought such papers and put them in Miss Barrow's room. When, too, Seddon was arrested, and told that he would be charged with poisoning Miss Barrow by administering arsenic, he said, Absurd! What a terrible charge, willful murder! It is the first of our family that has ever been charged with such a crime. Are you going to arrest my wife as well? If not, I would like you to give her a message from me. Have they found arsenic in her body? Has she not done this herself? It was not carbolic acid, was it? As there was some in her room. And Sunita's is not poison, is it? Perhaps those were not the exact words he uttered. But it is significant that Seddon, even at that time, should have said anything about arsenic. It is strange, too, that two days after he was arrested, he suggested that his daughter Maggie should be sent to buy some flypapers, because he remembered that there had been flypapers in the sick room, and it had struck him that some such papers might be bought and analyzed so that the quantity of poison on them could be discovered. It was clearly established in the course of the evidence that, as Miss Barrow's meals were prepared for her in a kitchen adjoining her bedroom, there was every opportunity for the Seddons to administer arsenic in her food, and it was proved that death was due to this poison, which must have been taken forty-eight hours before death. It was also shown that Miss Barrow did not take any medicine which contained arsenic. Day by day the trial went on, wearily enough at times, but there were breaks in the monotony when Seddon went into the witness box and also when his wife gave evidence. The Attorney General was wonderful in his calmness, but I think he was well matched in Seddon, who, with judge and counsel, as he had been with me, was instantly ready with a pat reply. There seemed to be no chance of tripping him up or trapping him. Yet it seems to be the fact that if he had not given evidence on his own behalf, he might well have been found not guilty and escaped that scaffold. In her own evidence, Mrs. Seddon positively swore that she had never given arsenic to Miss Barrow in any shape or form, and her husband became indignant at the suggestions of greed and inhumanity made against him. Once or twice, when he was under cross-examination, he showed his anger at being taken for what he called a degenerate. But on the whole, he kept amazingly cool, and it was hard to realize that either he or his wife was being tried for life. I think, generally speaking, that most people who heard the trial from start to finish imagined that whatever happened to the man, 
the woman would be set free. On the tenth day of the trial, which was Thursday, March 12th, the judge summed up and finished just before four o'clock in the afternoon. I had been specially struck by the final scene, the huge dock with about eight people in it, the sedents, two warders, two wardresses, and I think two doctors, and the two prisoners looking almost as if they might have been spectators instead of the most important persons present. There had been a long and intense strain on everybody. The jury were absent for an hour. Then they came back, and after due formalities, were asked for their verdict. First of all, in a terrible silence, they said they found Seddon guilty. Instantly the warders were standing by him like soldiers, and it seemed somehow as if even then he had become the special property of the law. Within a few seconds the jury had announced that they found Mrs. Seddon not guilty, and I think that most people in the court breathed the easier for the statement. Instantly, Seddon turned and passionately kissed his wife, who, being a free woman, was allowed to leave the dock immediately. She was in a state of collapse, though I believe that while she was in her cell during the police court proceedings, she was quite cheerful and sang audibly, to the astonishment even of the jailers, accustomed though they are to amazing things. Now came the most astounding and dramatic feature of the trial. Seddon was asked, according to form, if he had anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon him. Anything to say? Indeed he had. Plenty. And he began at once to say it. Already he had made unmistakable signs to the jury to try an influence such as them might be Freemasons. Now, with a coolness and assurance which were nothing short of marvelous, he arranged himself in front of the dock, put some papers down, and placed his hands on the rail. And just like Lloyd George or anybody else might begin to address a meeting, he started a speech to the judge. It was perfectly wonderful to listen to him, and it seemed as if he would never stop. He went on declaring his innocence, but in the same breath, admitting that he did not think that anyone believed it. He spoke of the crime as being diabolical, which it was, and said, I declare before the great architect of the universe, I am not guilty, my lord. It was truly distressing to see the end of the dreadful drama, for the judge was one of the kindest of men, and himself a Freemason, so that he must have felt the position acutely. Three times Seddon interrupted the judge while sentence was being passed, protesting perfectly calmly that he had a clear conscience, that he was at peace, and that his wife had done nothing wrong. And when he had been condemned, he turned quietly round and went below from the dock where he had spent so many dreadful hours to know the world no more. He appealed, of course, but his appeal failed, and on April 18, 1912, Seddon was hanged at Pentonville Prison, an enormous crowd having assembled outside the jail, though nothing was to be seen. 
that there was a vast number of people who believed either in his innocence or that his guilt had not been proved was shown by the fact that more than 300,000 persons signed a petition for a reprieve. I myself, speaking I hope calmly and fairly, have no doubt whatever that he was most justly and properly condemned and hanged. End of chapter 16 Seddon's Greed of Gold Recording by Tom Lennon